Destination Eat Drink is up next. But first, listen to this great other show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <clears throat> A lot of anchors do that. <clears throat> Are you ready? Oh, boy. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Hi, I'm Howard Sudbury. And I'm Steve Baskerville. Let's do good. it again. What? That was good. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Hi, I'm Howard Sudbury. And I'm Steve Baskerville. Back to you on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. I need an agent. A Shakespearean castle, a drink to keep you warm, and a pastry you can't call a Danish. This week, we're in Copenhagen, Denmark. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we visit a different foodie destination to try the cuisine that makes that city unique and find fun things to do there. This week, we're in the capital of Denmark, Copenhagen. But first, remember to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get podcasts. And every episode is archived at DestinationEatDrink.com. I've been wanting to go to Denmark for quite a while, but I haven't made it there yet. My brother was there a couple years ago. He enjoyed it, but I haven't been. So I very much wanted to talk to Maria Beisheim about her city of Copenhagen. I mean, you see the new Nordic cuisine featured on all the cooking shows these days, and it seems very interesting. And we talk about that, but a lot more, too. And let me say, during our conversation, I call it the new Scandinavian cuisine. Maria gently corrects me. It's actually called the new Nordic cuisine. All right, let's talk to Maria Beisheim. She studied archaeology with a focus on food, and now she runs foodtours.eu, a foodie tour company located in Copenhagen. They also do tours in Oslo, Norway, Stockholm, Sweden, Tallinn, Estonia, and they're coming soon to Helsinki, Finland. Destination, eat, drink. You're from Denmark, you live in Copenhagen, and the cuisine of Denmark and Scandinavia has just exploded in popularity in the last few years. I kind of think of, you've got traditional Danish cuisine, and then you've got this thing called new Danish cuisine or new Scandinavian cuisine. Could you explain what the difference is between the two and maybe some examples of each? The new Nordic cuisine, uh, I I just need to correct you there a little bit. Um, Sure. Not so much the new Scandinavian cuisine, more the new Nordic cuisine, uh, because that encompasses a little bit more territory than just uh, Scandinavia. But, um, well, the new Nordic uh, food manifesto, as it's called, was actually signed in 2004 here in Copenhagen by a group of chefs from uh, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, the Faroe Islands, lots of different places, uh, all up here in the north, of course. And they sat down at a meeting in November of 2004 at Carlsberg and talked about what can we do to sort of make turn the, the evolution of food around. In many ways, uh, food had food culture in Scandinavia had dwindled. People weren't spending a lot of time or a lot of money on their food. 
Um, most of our cooking traditions in the late 90s were considered old-fashioned, boring, fatty. Uh, and, and basically, a lot of the old Scandinavian food traditions had, if not disappeared, then at least dwindled down into something you did a little bit for Christmas and then not at all. So the new Nordic Food Manifesto was a lot about that. Let's take this food. Let's give it a twist. Uh, one of the rules, in fact, is um, this mustn't be a museum kitchen. we got to try and take inspiration from all over the world. So we take our local produce, we take our old Danish cooking traditions, and, and maybe we do something new with them. And, of course, one of the uh, signers and one of the main proponents of this were the chefs from Noma. That would be René Ritzepi. And the instigator of the meeting was a man called Klaus Meyer, uh, who, if you uh, have any interest in this, you will have heard of. He's also the one who originally opened the restaurant Aeon in the New York Central train station, which is now a Michelin star, I understand. What they did was try and use local produce, organic produce, and, and see what we have in the way of wild plants that grow here. So you can go to Noma and have uh, fried ants on a homegrown cucumber or something. Oh, <laughs> it was surprisingly good. Or you can then at the same time, of course, we have the traditional Danish cuisine where they are essentially doing the same thing we've always done. Um, maybe not the fried ants, but you will still find the cucumber and it will still be homegrown to a very large extent, that sort of thing. Uh, and so the, the traditional Danish dishes still exist, but people tend to try and spice it up a little bit, I guess, to spruce it up. It's so interesting to me because I assumed that this new um, Scandinavian cuisine, that this new Nordic cuisine, thanks for correcting me on that, that this new Nordic cuisine was sort of a grassroots movement, but you're saying it was actually codified 15 years ago or so. Now, you talked about wild plants and foraging is something that's very interesting to me. So what would be some of the wild plants, some of the wild herbs that we might see in this new Nordic cuisine? You could say some of the absolutely most popular ones these days uh, is um, sea buckthorn. Sea buckthorn is this tiny little orange berry. And uh, it turns out one berry contains a, a, an insane amount of vitamin C. It grows by the seaside on these, uh, I guess, bushes with long thorns on them. So they're actually very hard to pick, and people haven't done much with them for many years. But we now have projects that, that grow them. Uh, we also have the almost now iconic red wood sorrel. Uh, it's a, it's a little, it kind of looks like a four-leaf clover, but with three leaves, of course, and uh, it's red. And you find it in growing along the forest bottom, usually in the springtime. And it's, it's not the leaves necessarily that have a lot of flavor. It's more of the stems, actually. Uh, so when I was a child, I used to take walks with my grandparents in the woods on the weekend, and I would pick it until I gave myself a stomachache or until they told me to stop <laughs> okay. and, and just chew on it. Whereas now you find it at all the Michelin star restaurants, uh, neatly arranged on top of your steak or your, your salad or whatever it is you've just ordered. How would you describe the flavor, Maria? Um, sort of a little bit lemony. Kind of like eating a, a very uh, quick lemon drop. Okay. The sea buckthorn has a sort of an apricotty feel to it. Now, you manage uh, foodtours.eu in Copenhagen, Maria, and you do tours. You take tourists all over the city 
what are some of the things that American visitors, when they come to Copenhagen and they take your tour, what are some of the things that they find surprising about the city? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, I would say one that I've heard a lot and which used to puzzle me a bit was how everybody kept saying, oh, it's so quiet here. <laughs> uh, well, we aren't that many people, but it, it took me a while to realize that's not actually why. Um, you know, we have all these bicycles. Right. And so we don't have as much traffic noise as you would expect. In the city. Exactly. If you come from a place like I lived on the East Coast for a couple of decades and any city on the East Coast of the U.S., not only is there traffic, but you hear horns honking and people um, shouting all the time uh, in loud American voices. <laughs> and it does take some getting used to. I came from the Midwest where people tend to be more quiet. So I can see how someone from New York would come to Copenhagen and say, wow, it's so quiet and serene here, even though it's a big city. I hear that a lot. But of course, the, um, the number one question ever asked me or, or any of my colleagues a little bit strangely is um, about the locks on the bicycles. You see, we have a, a special lock. We have so many bicycles, it's not really possible to lock all of them to sort of official bicycle parking spaces. So we have a special bicycle lock that goes around the back wheel and simply locks the back wheel. So you're not locked to anything, but it, it locks the back wheel. And since very few people have seen those before, they're not always, they don't always notice that. So the most asked question on food tour is why does no one lock their bikes? Couldn't you just, uh, of course, my, my devious mind immediately thinks, couldn't you just pick up the bike and throw it in the back of your car and steal it that way if you're going to lock up that bike? You could, and some people, of course, do. But honestly, we have so many bicycles here. Um it's something like 63% of our population who bicycle to work every single day. Wow. And if you have your standard bicycle, it's probably going to disappear among all the rest. It's funny because you say 63% are riding their bikes to work every day. We are, in many of our big cities in the U.S., we're trying to get more people to bike to work on a daily basis. And the goal that they are looking to achieve is 5%. If they can get up to 5%, they think that they've been successful. You've got two-thirds of all the people in Copenhagen doing that, and I assume it's in all weather, too, riding their bike in, in the middle of winter like it is right now. Absolutely. Actually, there were quite a lot of bikes on the street today. Even though it's cold and, and uh, probably lots of snow in Copenhagen right now. Actually, uh, there's no snow today, but they promised some more over the weekend. Uh, we had some snow last week, but it seems to have melted. But um, the thing is, tonight, of course, uh, it's getting on for Christmas. And we have a tradition uh, in December and, frankly, uh, starting in, in November and going into January of uh, what's what we call the Christmas lunch. Uh, it's a bit of a misnomer, but it's the all the, the companies, the associations, the football clubs, whatever it is, Everybody's got the the Christmas lunch. It's a sort of a Christmas company party. Right. Um, and because there are a lot of companies and associations and there isn't always enough space in all the different restaurants and venues, it starts early. It, it, I mean, if you have a fairly normal active social life, say you work for one company, your, your wife works for another company, you're also a member of the local sports team. 
and your kids uh, go to an association for band practice or something. That's four Christmas lunches right there. <laughs> they got to start pretty early. Right. So the thing is, of course, that it, they usually start either on the Friday or the Saturday after work. So that's about four, four, four or five-ish o'clock. And then you, you have a big meal and you get somewhat inebriated. I'm saying nothing. <laughs> okay. And uh, then it can go on late into the night when you suddenly find yourself um, dancing a, a, a jig on the copying machine. I, <laughs> nothing, nothing, I tell you. <laughs> nothing you have firsthand experience with, but these things but, may or may not have happened in the past. Yes, to other people. <laughs> to other, other people. <laughs> Very good. So you bring up drinking. We'll, we'll talk about food a little bit more. But since you brought up drinking, Maria, um, what about uh, glog? It's wintertime in in uh, Denmark right now, so it must be time to drink glog, right? It is. I had some earlier. What is what is glog specifically? How would we enjoy it when we're in Copenhagen? So glug um, com- comes from the word glugelvin, so burnt wine. And originally came from came to Denmark from Sweden. As with many things, this was hundreds of years ago. We've tended to make it our own as well. Uh, so essentially, uh, by the way, it's uh, not really the same as uh, the German Glühwein. I was going to ask you about that because we were in Berlin at Christmas markets a couple of years ago, and we had Glühwein there and enjoyed it very much. And I was wondering how it was similar or different to Glug. Well, the the idea of heated wines you find in many cultures around the world. Um, but Glück, uh, that, that does come from a, a Scandinavian word. And it does seem to come from Sweden, where they had a very famous king who enjoyed drinking warm wine and spices all the time because he could afford it because he was the king. <laughs> but the normal people couldn't afford it. So they would um, they would drink it for celebration dates, such as Christmas, which is what we still do. But it's basically, um, depending on your recipe, and there are several, we even have a Danish national championships, which was this year on the 16th of November. Um, then you vary the recipe, you make one that's more innovative than others, but it's variations on a theme. You have a, a warmed up uh, wine in Denmark, uh, probably a warmed up fruit juice added to that. And you got your, your spice mix, which involves cinnamon, cloves, or something else if you're feeling innovative. And, uh, then you pour in the alcohol. I, uh, and yeah, well, I know you thought the wine was the alcohol, but no. <laughs> oh, there's more. There is, uh, usually the schnapps or aquavit. Okay. And this you pour in. And you can also use brandy or, or, pretty much anything else that you desire. And then uh, once you're done with all of that and you're happy with your glück, then you pour it into a glass and then you add to it the uh, the chopped up almonds and the raisins, which you will remember you soaked for 30 days in alcohol, in, in brandy or schnapps or aquavit or whatever it was you wanted. Oh, perfect. Yes. And as they have soaked in there for 30 days, that's where the alcohol is. A lot of the other stuff's burned away. So if you don't want to get a little loopy, leave the raisins where they are. Okay. So got it. Tip. Yeah, that's how we make our, uh, my girlfriend makes rum balls. Well, we call them rum balls. We use all kinds of different, uh, different liquors, but uh, we'll uh, marinate the pecans. We'll macerate the pecans in 
alcohol for, you know, a couple of weeks before we actually make the rum balls. And so that's very similar. You know, in the U.S., we have something called mold wine which is sort of mm-hmm. similar to, to what you're doing. But you would you would get mulled wine probably at a holiday party, like you said, Maria, or maybe at someone's house if you go over for Christmas. Uh, my mother used to make mulled wine. Where would you get glug? Would you only get it at parties in individuals' houses, or would you go to a restaurant and they might have glug on the menu? Well, right now it's December, and literally everyone has glug. I have some glug in my refrigerator right now. Okay. Uh, I haven't finished it or it up but um but yeah uh you would have it at christmas markets you would have it in the street you can have it at restaurants um you could have it at tivoli you can have it in people's houses at any of the christmas lunches that people are going to right now it works excellently as a sort of a welcome drink uh you would have it if you're standing in the street maybe you have it with the apleskewer which i know a lot of americans have heard of the apple dumplings oh yes those are good. Uh, they they will warm you up nicely and maybe soak up a little bit of that alcohol right there. Uh, but yeah, pretty much anywhere this time of year. Another drink that's um, popular with the Danes is beer. Has the craft beer craze hit Copenhagen? Are there little microbreweries? And what kind of beer can we get when we're in Copenhagen? There you have the good question. So of course, uh, the big one, the named one is the uh, Carlsberg. Of course. That's a big one. Um, but after 2003 especially, we get a lot of microbreweries. And by a lot of microbreweries, I mean technically in Denmark you could – I believe I read a number that said you could have six new beers every day of the year and never actually have to have the same one twice. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a challenge. Let's try it. But if you're coming now, there is but one that matters. And that is the Juleborg, or Christmas beer. Okay, and what makes that special? Well, apart from everything else, it's only available at this time of year, which means it gets very, very exciting when it comes out in the shops. In fact, it comes out in the shops, this can sound a little bit funny, uh, on J-Day. J-Day stands for Juleborg Day, and that is the first Friday of November at 1 minute to 9 in the evening. Okay. Is there a special significance to one minute to nine? Yes. It used to come out at midday, but I am afraid <laughs> my uh, schoolmates used to sneak out of class and then uh, get really roaring drunk in high school and then come back uh, to high school drunk. Oh, my goodness. Um, that would be my schoolmates. <laughs> Again, not you. People not you might have known. Or, or seen in the distance. Yeah. <laughs> not anybody I would associate with. Of course not. So if we're in Copenhagen and we want to enjoy some nice craft beer, um, is there a pub culture in Copenhagen? What kind of bars would we go to? What are some specific places where we might go that we might enjoy a Danish beer? Well, we um, I don't know about pub culture. We do have some pubs. Um, we don't have the British pub culture where everybody goes out immediately after work. We do have a number of lovely bars, um, beer bars, microbreweries, things like that. Um, I would particularly recommend uh, Nørrebro Boykhus. Uh, that's a brew house in the area of town called Nørrebro, which is sort of the north side. They have their own uh, craft brewery uh, inside the bar, so you can actually see it, and they do some amazing stuff. They have their own Christmas beer as well. Um, so that's that's a really nice one. But there are many others. Perhaps the one that, that might be best known in America is Mikula. 
Um, Mikela is a chain of bars uh, owned by a, a micro a micro brewer. Okay, he's not really very micro anymore, but a brewer called Mikkel Bobiauser, who makes um, his own beer recipes, and they're actually known as some of the best in the world as well. Or, of course, uh, with this interest in beer, even Carlsberg itself has opened their own microbrewery at their old site called the Jacobson Brewery. And they have a lovely bar as well. Uh, that's on the west side of town. Mikela, by the way, is sort of scattered everywhere. They also have restaurants and things like that. Or uh, a new up-and-comer is Ama Boikos, or the brew pub near the City Hall Square, where you sit inside a, an 18th century building. It's always really nice as well. Those are some great recommendations, Maria. Let, let's talk about um, some of the food that we can try when we're in Copenhagen, I was reading about the sandwich, and of course, I don't speak Danish, so I'm going to mangle the name of the sandwich unless you want to rescue me right now and tell me the name of it. Smørbrød. Smørbrød. Okay. Tell me about the sandwich because it sounds very interesting. Well, the smørbrød, uh, which is, by the way, a different one word than the Swedish smorgasbord, uh, the smørbrød literally translates more or less as decorated bread or bread with butter. Um, in, in this case, they're interchangeable. Uh, and the bread that's in question is usually the rye bread. The rye bread uh, being a, a very sort of Danish staple. It fills you up pretty well, and it's an old sort of country food. But in ever since about the mid-1800s, uh, people like to sort of dress it up turn it into a restaurant showpiece. So you could now sit down at restaurants and, and just be that little bit more fancy with it. Eat it with knife and fork, among other things. Hmm. And it, it take up your whole plate. According to Ida Davison, who is obviously the um, the, the doyen of all things Smurbel. Hi, Ida. I mentioned your name. <laughs> um, no, I'm sorry. Ida Davison is... Um, is perhaps the, the greatest representative of the classic Danish smørbrød. Um, according to her, it's not a real smørbrød unless the toppings are hanging out over the bread on all sides. Okay, great. So, and from there, it just, it decorates up. But of course, with the rise of the new Nordic food wave, there are loads and loads of new places that are absolutely fantastic and which are worth trying. Um, Ida Davison's is, is the most awesome uh, representation of the classic stuff, but but there's loads of new ones. Who are some of the others that you enjoy in uh, Copenhagen, Maria? I always found uh, one of my absolute top favorites to be Oatmans. Uh It's in two different locations in Copenhagen, either in Østerfejmaksgade number ten, or in uh, in the center town. I uh, it's in uh, it Omans is the name of the owner. It's Adam Oman. Uh, double A M A N N. He is. Uh, he's got his own TV show these days where he talks about how to make food from scratch, and that's a large part of what he does. It's it's organic. It's free range. It's local. It's it's made from scratch as opposed to purchased somewhere else. Uh, so that's that's a really nice place. I think it's a crime that they don't have a Michelin star yet. But there is uh, one that does have a Michelin star. Is Selma. Uh, that's another really nice one. They'll they'll make some very very pretty sandwiches. 
or a brand new one that I just visited called Norlust, uh, which is very much in the center town in Kompaniso. And and you heard it here first. I mean, seriously, if they don't have a Michelin star by next year, I'm going to be very surprised. Okay. We'll look for that. That's that's on one side. I would call that elevated Copenhagen food. Is Copenhagen known for its street food as well? I, it wasn't before. I mean, the, the original Danish street food, of course, was the sausage stand, Pilsemen. Um it, I suppose you would call it a hot dog, but it's not a hot dog quite as, as you think of it. It's it's an uh, appearance a little bit more similar to what you might see in Germany. Like a currywurst, maybe? No, no, not that either. Um, I mean, it is a, it's, it's a sausage, and you can have it with bread, or you can have it as a hot dog, so inside the bread. But there are lots of other ways you can do it as well. And um, among them, of course, you would find the red sausage, which is uh, so bad for you. It's actually legal in most of the other places in the world. <laughs> <laughs> we do like to hang on to our traditions, though. Uh, but the, the sausage stand was our only original street food, and, and the look of the specific stand, the sort of shed on wheels, is, is a very Danish thing. So it's, it's where everybody used to come in a day. Uh, it, it's where everybody used to hang out. That means it's basically the, the city water cooler. You, you would, I mean, my grandfather was the most well-informed man in our street because he used to hang out with the sausage guy. And he had all the gossip, all the news. Exactly. He knew exactly who was doing what to whom and why and where. <laughs> Perfect. So I, I grew up in, I grew up in Chicago and we have a famous hot dog there called the Chicago dog. And the Chicago dog is unique in that there are specific toppings that go on the Chicago dog and certain things that you cannot put on a Chicago dog or else it no longer is a Chicago dog. Are there specific ways of preparation for these um, Copenhagen hot dogs that would make them unique to Copenhagen? There are several ways to do it. Perhaps the most original way is simply to have a, a little plate with the sausage and a bread next to it and then ketchup and mustard. But if you're going to have it proper hot dog style, like an American would recognize a hot dog, what you need to put on it is um, mustard, ketchup, remoulade, which is kind of like a, a bit of a Danish tartar sauce. And then uh, raw onions, of course, and the pickles and the most awesome thing that, that has ever been put on this earth, which is the roasted onions. Okay. Basically, the toasted onions are the thing that when Danish people travel and they go to other countries, they'll, they'll send tear-stained SMSs home going, <laughs> some more push, and also roasted onions. Please send immediately. Emergency. Uh, we actually have a, uh, a saying in Denmark, I don't know if it's going to translate really well, that SMS stands for send me a sleep, send me more candy. <laughs> okay, very good. A, a lot of a lot of what we've talked about has uh, meat in it, but how would a vegetarian fare if they came to Copenhagen to eat? Twenty years ago, it might have been a lot more difficult, or even ten years ago. But these days, the vegetarian scene is actually pretty good. Um, even at some of the more sort of Michelin-style um, restaurants, it it really has. Um, become less meat, no, no matter what. I and mean, the, the meat portions are smaller. Uh, but yeah, there would be lots and lots of uh, wonderful vegetarian restaurants around. And, and nearly every restaurant will have a, a vegetarian option. Uh, we now have vegan restaurants 
a few uh, coming around. It's uh, and and a lot of people are starting to to rethink some of our traditions. To to my great shock and surprise, and eventually purchase, I actually found these this little licorice um, in in English. I think they call them licorice all sorts. We call them the Christkindfekt, uh, vegan version. The other day at a Christmas market, we when we were in Berlin, we actually found vegan currywurst, which I found very surprising, but also very delicious. I I, I loved it. Several ways of doing that. Um, I know a place that has these wonderful uh, tofu dogs, but I also know a place that does it out of, uh, what is it, pea protein? Oh, yeah, that is becoming extraordinarily popular now. So one of my favorite things to do when visiting Europe is to go to these food halls, because in the past they used to be kind of what we would call farmer's markets. You'd go there and you'd buy produce. But now you're seeing restaurants pop up in these food halls. Is there a famous food hall in Copenhagen? There is. Uh, so one thing is, of course, we do still have the occasional farmer's markets, um, even in Copenhagen. They're, they're more normal in the countryside, but you will see them also in Copenhagen on some days. Um, the problem with farmers markets in Copenhagen in December is, well, it's cold. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but in 2011, we actually took our old market square, which used to be an open market. When, when I was little, there were these, uh, I guess, uh, benches or, or counters. I'm not sure how you would say that. They were green, just standing outside, and there'd be these rough and ready burly guys and they'd be standing next to them with some flowers or shouting 10 bananas 10 kroners hey get your hands off that kiddo (laughs) i've met not not me um yeah my my dad to teach at the school next door so i I may have been involved a little bit but in in 2011 we finally built or open covered market halls in that square. I mean, there's a reason it was always a good market square strategically located. It's it's something we're used to the idea of this is where the food is. Uh, so they built these covered market halls there. Um, they do have restaurants, but it's actually meant to be a place for people to go and shop. So restaurants are supposedly only on the ends. Well, I, I know not supposedly they are only on the ends. Uh, and the stuff in the middle they have to actually also sell stuff that you can bring home that um, that you can bring home and use to cook your own food. Danish people do still very much enjoy cooking food at home. Um, we, we never quite got out of the idea that, that restaurants were expensive and, and something that was just a little bit sort of fancy, maybe a little bit dangerous. Um, for my parents, the idea of going to a restaurant was something you did on your wedding day, and then you never did it again. Wow. That famous Danish frugality, I think. And then you, you did it on your wedding day because someone else paid, right? So, um, <laughs> But as the new Nordic food wave especially has grown, we now have more restaurants. Um, they aren't as forbidding. They're, they're cheaper. Uh, they're also less formal. Um, so we, we do have now a, a whole culture for going out to eat, maybe not as in many countries every day or every week, but certainly often enough that, that we can maintain a number of, of restaurants. Um, but so uh, anyway, at the market, we also do have these shops where you go in and you buy your your cheeses, your jams, your meats, your, your breads, anything like that, your flour uh, from small producers or relatively small producers, depending on which shop you stop at. 
it's a lot of fun. So it is truly a market. What What's the name of the uh, market again? It's called Tove Helene. Okay, I'm not going to try to pronounce that, but we will have a link to that in the uh, show notes when we uh, put this podcast up live. And, you know, there's been a fair amount of immigration into Denmark lately. I know that people from Turkey and Pakistan have been there for a while. What are, uh, I imagine these folks have opened restaurants. What are some of the cuisines that have migrated to Copenhagen? The first thing that arrived uh, was actually the kebab. We even now, uh, there's there's an area of, of Copenhagen called Nobel, which I believe still once a year does a uh, best kebab competition. Um, I'm sorry, I, I don't remember who won this year. It was, it was too long. It was all the way back in the summer. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, but it's, it's something that Danish people relate to. We have, we go out, we have a nice shawarma, things like that. We, it's something we've had for quite some time. Uh, pizza and pasta, of course, uh, arrived, but that again, it was very often something that you cooked at home. Incidentally, pasta was not a word until I was like 21. It was spaghetti or nothing. Right. Uh, so it was, it's not relatively recent by then. And uh, then now this can sound a little bit strange, but the the Thailand Thai Thai cuisine arrived to the point where we now have the only Michelin star Thai restaurant outside of Thailand. Wow! And and what's the name of that restaurant? That's called Kim Kim. They have a, a number of uh, you know baby restaurants or smaller restaurants. I don't know how you say that, but uh, they also then have the the central Michelin star restaurant. In the U.S., we have something we call a Danish pastry or just a Danish. But my understanding is that there it's really isn't something that's well known in Denmark and is not from Denmark at all. Instead, you have something called uh, Weinerbrod. Is that the correct pronunciation? Probably not. But well, Wienerbrod. And tell us about this, because it sounds very interesting. Well, so the Danish pastry, um, I don't really recognize. And, and honestly, I've never had one. Uh, not not the way that I, I understand that American people see it. Um, no, but um, but Danish pastry, uh, yeah, we call it Wienerbrod. Uh, the Viennese don't recognize it either. <laughs> it, it basically... There are many stories. Um, you, you can classify a little bit as you want. Some people say it was because there was a strike and we got bakers from Vienna in. Honestly, uh, we just don't have, we didn't have much of a tradition for cooking with, with wheat bread. Uh, so that's a relatively late addition. When I, uh, it's about 1700s, mid 1700s, we, we start to cook with, with wheat bread and, and you need to learn um how to do that and apparently some of the bakers that we had uh either spoke to viennese bakers here or traveled to uh, vienna depends on who you listen to um in order to learn more about this idea of, of baking stuff with wheat uh but the the danish populace who, who then have to purchase it are still a little bit sort of like what is that normally we <laughs> Use wheat on special occasions because it's expensive, so we put it in cakes. And and um, well, so one baker had the clever idea of, of sort of uh, flattening it and putting lots of sugar on it and, and calling it something nice and and um, and exotic sounding like Viennese bread. And there you have it. 
when did that when did that come to Copenhagen? How long ago are we talking? I uh, again, it kind of depends on. I don't want to start a war here. Uh, who, who, <laughs> There's uh, always different stories, right? Oh God, yeah. I uh, kind of who who do you about 1845? Okay. Um, but but uh, yeah, don't hurt me. Uh, <laughs> you disagree, but uh, but around about that time. Um, your tour company. Foodtour.eu. You have a West End tour. What's special about the West End of Copenhagen? Copenhagen, historically, uh, mostly consisted of the city center, which was the area that used to be behind the city walls. Uh, later on, we tear the city walls down, as most cities in Europe do. And the areas outside it, we call the, the bridge neighborhoods, named after those bridges that used to cross the moat out from the city walls. And so there's Nørrebro, North Bridge, Vesterbro, uh, East Bridge, and then West Bridge. And these, uh, especially Nørrebro and Vesterbro, are all sort of um, working class communities, uh, industrial neighborhoods, things like that. And in the West Side, we had the very, very interesting, very vibrant, very... Um, busy meatpacking district. Uh, when I say that, that's actually, I know we translated that way, but it's actually a little bit wrong. It's it's butcher neighborhood. It's Kobe in the meat area. Okay. There was butchery going on. It wasn't just packaging the meat. There was, you know, the whole cow came in and sausages went out the other end. Uh, that's that's the basic uh, point of, of Kobe. And it, it was in its day, back in the 1930s especially, and, and before that in the 1870s, it was, it was it was the the pinnacle of industrialization. It was it was super interesting. Um, but these days, but then it as these things start to move out of town, it, it sort of dies out. There's not much there. It's sort of derelict. But ever since 2004 and 2005, we've really been spending a lot of time, a lot of effort on on reviving that area, and a lot of these. Uh, little food producers have moved in. You, you said before you thought it was a grassroots movement. It is that too. It's, it's a lot of the young people, especially who've sort of become inspired by this new Nordic food wave and the new Nordic food manifesto and, and really caught on to the idea that, that they could do that too. And a lot of them have, have opened shops. A lot of people who, who have a passion for their food have opened shops out there. And it's, it's really helped revitalize the area. So you go out there now, you find coffee shops, um, you find restaurants, you find nightclubs, you find cocktail bars, you find chocolate shops for no better reason than, sure, that's free. <laughs> Let's do that. I mean, it's, it's people who may come from all walks of life, all sorts of different backgrounds who just really want to do something that will make other people happy. What's your favorite place to go in the West End, Maria? I don't know if I can choose a favorite. You can pick as many as you like. <laughs> um, there are many tricky ones. It kind of depends on what you're in the mood for. But if you're there, and maybe it's a hot day, which it might be, uh, there's a lovely ice cream shop called Kilburn's East, where you can go and get handmade, homemade ice cream. That's always good. Yum. Or yeah, and the guys there are super nice. Uh, there's also, oh boy, there's loads of Mikula places that you can sit down at bars, restaurants. Uh, there's um, there's a lovely organic restaurant. It's 100% organic called Bio Mio. 
uh, or Bob for short. <laughs> yeah, I know it's uh, it, it's Bio Mio Organic Bistro is shortened to Bob. Some people travel without food in mind. I don't know who these people are, but they come to Copenhagen to see other things besides food and drinks and whatnot. What are some of the big can't-miss attractions that we should see when we visit Copenhagen? Well, I mean, the, the royal palaces are always great. Um, there are several. The changing of the guards down at Amalienborg is, um, is always a wonderful place to go. Uh, for my money, though, I kind of like Rosenberg Castle. Rosenberg. It has everything under one roof. It's where we it, literally, it, it's where we keep the uh, crown jewels in the basement. So you go into the castle, you see all the furniture, and it's it's almost overcrowded with things. When they opened it as a museum, the royal family had been using it as a storage facility for for hundreds of years. There was stuff in there we didn't even know we had. Oh wow! Uh, so there there's quite a lot of stuff in there. Um, then there's uh, the Parliament Castle. You can always do a canal tour. Uh, Tivoli is a big thing, definitely. I mean, I, I know lots of people go, oh, it's an amusement park. I've been to amusement parks before. But it's not really the, the point of the thing. It's, it's very, very pretty. It's, it's an old-fashioned amusement park. It's, it's like if, if you have a mental image of what an amusement park was like in 1870, you, you're not far wrong. Are there any lesser-known attractions that we should see when we're in Copenhagen? Well, I think there are quite a few, actually. There's there's quite a few nice places to see. Um, but just off the top of my head, one that, that I think is a little bit sad that not enough people go to see is actually the Workers' Museum. You go around Europe, you go around so many different places, and you see the castles, and you see the the noble homes and everything, but we actually have a museum to the working class, to the poor. And that's not something you see every day. Yes. Actually, right across the street almost from Tolvahelen, from the market halls, and is part of the um, uh, bit of a museum complex we have there. And it's just a really interesting place to go, I think. Um, it has... It, it has all these uh, little images of, and, and, and tableaus of how an, an old house would have looked in, in my grandfather's day or in my great-grandfather's day. These were working-class people. Incidentally, my grandfather had 16 brothers and sisters in a two-room apartment. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so they would have a kitchen like he would have seen or, in fact, like I'm looking at right now, uh, standing there and um, – they have pictures of how people would work in all the factories and the story of how child labor gets phased out in Denmark and all these different things. So it's, it's actually a really interesting thing. Also, um, if you'd like to see something just a little bit more modern, the design museum is always nice. Oh, of course. The Danish are so well known for their efforts in design. Yeah. Um, they have a whole room, I think, dedicated to chairs. So we, we talk a lot about the chairs and, and how they were designed. And, and uh, yeah, it's actually a really interesting place. Now, we can't talk about Copenhagen without mentioning Christiania. Um, I know people who have gone there, and I've heard both good and bad things about Christiania. I have not been personally. Maria, you're from Copenhagen. Give us your take on, well, first of all, what is Christiania? And then give us your take on what it's all about and what it's like and should people visit there? 
Kashania always seems to be a bit of a watershed. Um, people tell me they either love it or hate it. Uh, there, there doesn't seem to be an in-between. People either, I see people after they've been to Kashania and they look traumatized or they look extremely happy and they can't wait to go back. I've heard it both ways. Wow. There, there are people you can't, I mean, once they've been there once, you, you can't seem to hogtie them and pull them out of there by wild horses. Um, basically, Kashania started out in the 1970s um, as a hippie commune. It was an old area that was derelict. That was another area which had previously been used by the the Navy or uh, shipbuilding industry, and there there wasn't much there. Um, So it was occupied by an occupied movement, young people who, who were living in Copenhagen and were dissatisfied with the price of housing, uh, and the opportunities that they had, and they wanted freedom and, and more, of a, more of a chance to decide what they want to do. And so they declared it an independent state, uh, something which the Danish government was not unanimously happy about, right? Uh, as these things go. But having said that, they just sort of survived because love it or hate it, it's certainly different. And there are and there were lots of people who felt very strongly that even if you don't want to live that way, there there should be a place for people who want to live life on their own terms, who, who, who want to decide what they want to do without reference to anything else. Right, right. But having said that, time is the great enemy you know it it passes and these people have gotten older and um so christiania has done what it had to do to survive and and gone more mainstream among other things they uh they went in collectively and purchased the land uh from the government they they now pay these things collectively so essentially it's it's still a, a commune but it's it's more of an official one than it was before um, so people live there, and uh, they often do things like art. Uh, they, they believe it or not, they, they do have a nationally important an export. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so, but it's it's a place. They have lots of concerts, uh, lots of musicians, lots of people who come there for for artistic purposes. They make bicycles. Very excellent bicycles, by the way. Um, there's a, there's a guy who restores and rebuilds old ovens. Yep. Good, good. I know it sounds strange, but uh, what they're actually most famous for is uh, these days is their Christmas market, which oh. actually happens well, tomorrow. Makes sense. Yep. Uh, there, everything is homemade. Uh, and handmade, and yes, quite a bit of it is made from hemp. Uh, there is a street in Christiania, uh, and that's rather the one that sheds the water. So if, if it had been just an artist commune, fine. But with all the belief in free love, free politics, free everything, comes the belief in free marijuana. Uh, and so Pusher Street is well named. Uh, it is a point of controversy even among the Christianianites who feel that partly they feel it shouldn't be regulated, but also at the same time they know that if it isn't, then Christiania will not be able to continue into the 21st century in the form that it has. So a few years ago, they'd actually closed it down themselves. 
uh, it has reopened again, but in a, it's it's not as it was. It's it's not the 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 same way it, it used to be, and and people are starting to to think of it more as um as a different thing. Um, marijuana is not per se legal in Denmark. You can get it on prescription. I'm not exactly sure how that that counts in under American law. You can get it on prescription. Yeah, we call it medicinal marijuana in the U.S. Uh, but in in Christiania, it's just always it it gets raided a couple times a year. Uh, they will arrest I don't know about 300 people, but they only prosecute three because they usually have something harder, or they have enough that they can tell that these are the the main sellers. Right. So so that's a good that's a good point, Maria, because, you know, marijuana is one thing. Hard drugs are certainly another. Is is there a presence of hard drugs in Christiania? It's always been kind of like Bigfoot. You see the traces, but you rarely see the thing itself. Mm. It's yeah. I mean, I, I it depends on whether or not you know who to go and ask. But then again, I, I honestly, I think that's the case for, for every city everywhere of course uh but, but the marijuana sales in pusher street are extremely out in the open there's there's no secret about that so we're in copenhagen for several days and maybe we want to take a trip outside the city i always love to take a quick day trip are there good places that are close by copenhagen that we can do a day trip to many um i would suggest uh immediately taking a train for about 25 minutes or so, uh, to Louisiana. Louisiana is the modern art museum, which is uh, right on the waterfront. It's it's very, very beautiful. I think it's actually on the uh, 100 places you must see in the world list. It's a modern art museum, so they change their exhibits fairly regularly. But the museum itself, just a view from there, you, you can see all the way over to Sweden. It's, it's quite lovely. And and they are very good at curating different exhibits, so it's, it's usually very interesting. And they even have a really nice little cafe. Uh, then if you still have time, it's a bright summer day, you could continue up to Kronborg, to Hamlet's Castle, where you would go in and see the castle, and or maybe if you're there in August during the festival, you get to see Hamlet play. Uh, we've had many famous people who played Hamlet in Denmark, of course, and many less famous people who played Hamlet in Denmark. Uh, they, they seem to alternate uh, between super famous big productions and what in the world is that? Uh, <laughs> my favorite being uh, 1985, I think, Hamlet the Rock and Roll Ballet. Perfect. Just outside it is now a naval museum, which is quite interesting. But... If if you don't want to go north, you could go west for the same amount of time, about 35 minutes, to Roskilde, where you get to visit the um, the Viking Ship Museum, which is always good, or the Roskilde Cathedral, where we've been burying our kings and queens for pretty much forever. Or if you want to do something that maybe nobody else does or not many other people do, if you go up north again, between Louisiana and uh, Combo is the uh, Karen Blixen Museum, the authoress uh, who wrote a number of books uh, which are absolutely translated into English, but Babette's Feast perhaps being the most famous. Oh, yeah. It's made into a movie as well. Yes, exactly. And uh, she is – it's her house. She was a, a baroness, of course, so it's, it's a very fancy house. Um, lots of stuff 
that relates to her. And, and of course, she's buried in the, um, in the grounds. So you can go out into that extremely beautiful park and, and find the place where she's buried. And it's, it's actually very quiet there. It's, it's a very special place. Um, just to, I don't know, it's a bit of a secret, apparently. But Thanks for getting the secret out there. Yeah, it's between you and me and everybody else. Apparently, at the time, it was illegal to bury pets. But when she died, her dog was, was dying too. So apparently, a couple of days later, her brother snuck out there and buried her dog with her. While the dog was still alive? No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I just had this horrible vision in my mind of how this went down. Okay, very good. I was sick, and it died a few days later. Okay. Just snuck out and buried it there as well. Okay, very good. Well, those are some great tips, Maria. And it's just been a pleasure to talk to you because, you know, it's whet my appetite for going to Copenhagen. And I'm sure all of the listeners are very excited to go to Copenhagen, too. It's such an exciting and vibrant city. And I can't wait to get there at some point. It's definitely going towards the top of my list. And uh, thank you so much for talking with us today. You're very welcome. I mean, Copenhagen's a lovely town, and I know uh, lots of people do tend to travel to uh, more than one town while you're here, and, and you're, of course, welcome to. Uh, if you want to go out just a little bit further, uh, remember Odense uh, in the Middle Island of Denmark has a fantastic Hans Christian Andersen Museum, or if you get all the way over uh, to the peninsula, there's Legoland uh, with the new Lego house. Oh, of course, yes. Lego restaurants also fun. So Maria, if someone wants to take a food tour with you in Copenhagen, tell them how they can get in touch with you. Uh, there's several ways. We're, we're on several platforms. We're on TripAdvisor, of course. But if you go to foodtours.eu, we're called .eu because we've also opened uh, just recently a, a department in Stockholm and one in Oslo. Uh, and then you click on the city that you want and then on the tour that you want. And you can also write to us on info at foodtours.eu. Or, of course, call us. Um, this is a Danish number, of course. So 0045-5123645. Okay, Maria, foodtours.eu. Thank you for being on the program. And we look forward to seeing you down the road. You're welcome. I got to say, the Danes really seem to have it all together. I mean, foraging for herbs, riding bikes to work, and always set with some gluck in the fridge. That sounds like living to me. And you always see Denmark near the top of the countries with the happiest people. So they must be doing something right. Well, that's the show for this week. Join me next week when, if all goes as planned, we'll be visiting Pittsburgh. I know, I know. It's not the first place you think of when you think of a foodie city. But trust me, the Steel City is going to blow your mind. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>